When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We're spreading the nuance in 2018. Sarah and I are making plans for live podcasts, workshops, keynote speeches, and political reconciliation work. If you'd like us to come to your university, workplace, or organization, please email me at beth at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. The opioid epidemic impacts all of us in increasingly significant ways. Today, we're discussing the impact of President Trump's decision to declare this a public health emergency. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Happy Thanksgiving week, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsy Politics. As Sarah mentioned on Friday's show, this is a great time, especially for us to say thank you to the more than 300 people who support us on a monthly basis on Patreon. We could not make the show without your support, and we're very grateful. If you would like to become a monthly supporter, you can do that for anything from a dollar to a hundred dollars a month and get lots of extra content, you can go over to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. We also are 
mere mere moments, mere moments away from launching The Nuanced Life, our new podcast, which takes the sometimes extensive conversations we have on this podcast about things that are not so much political and, and gives them a home. It gives them a home. We have conversations about family and marriage and our favorite topic, culture, and the messages we send each other. Um, and we talk about articles, sort of the same structure we do on Pantsuit Politics, just not political. So if you want to check out The Nuanced Life, um, you should be able to subscribe by the time this episode comes out. And we also have a new Instagram account at The Nuanced Life. So the House of Representatives passed its tax cut bill. There is a new bill in front of the Senate now, and we'll see what happens. It looks a little choppy. Senator Johnson is still on record as opposing the Senate bill. The Senate has inserted the repeal of the individual mandate under the ACA into its bill, which has caused problems with Senator Murkowski and Senator Collins. Although Senator Collins has not committed to voting against the bill yet. And Sarah, I know you had some thoughts on other little treats that are to be found in the Senate bill. Well, and here's the thing. I think the overall perspective is important first. Even if they get it through the Senate, which I think is not super likely, they still have to get together with the House version, which is very different and agree. Before Christmas? Guys. With love. I think you're being a little overly optimistic. Um, here's two differences between the bills that I think are just a few a few little um, disagreement points and also don't look good in the court of public opinion. So in the House bill, they have eliminated the deduction for interest paid on student loans as well as um, going after a student um, a tax that a tax exemption that graduate students pay on. So they're basically raising taxes on about 100,000 graduate students who receive tuition waiver, waivers. These are not super wealthy people. This could have a huge impact on them. Um, I've read a lot of writings and we'll put a f- few articles in the show notes. And then the two things I feel like I saw bubble up to the surface were this raising taxes on graduate students. And then the Senate version has a tax that ensure well, it eliminates a tax that private jets pay private jet owners pay to management companies that handle like the storage and upkeep of their private jets. Now I was not aware of this because I do not own a private jet. But like the contrast of news articles that are like they're increasing taxes on graduate students and cutting taxes on private jet owners. Not good. Not a good narrative. Not a good look. Just it's just not a good look, guys. Well, especially when you think about the reasoning for it. I mean, these increases are ways to pay for the decreases elsewhere mm-hmm. and to keep it within that $1.5 trillion framework. I saw this morning on Morning Joe a chart that in if you project out into the 2020s, we are already headed for a, na- a national deficit that's 91% of our GDP. With this plan, if it passes, we will be headed for a 99% deficit to GDP, meaning our debt will be as much as the size of our entire economy. I'm not sure who thinks that's a good idea. Yeah, I didn't go to school for um, economics, but that sounds bad to me. And look, I'm a Democrat. I don't care about deficits. Just kidding. That's a joke. But seriously. (laughs) 
we're all going to have to care about it. And the thing is, here's what I learned from being a business restructuring lawyer for a few years. If you wait to address financial disaster until it has arrived, your options for dealing with it are very, very limited. Hmm. You cannot wait to restructure your obligations at at the moment they've come due. You have to do it earlier. And it seems to me like we're at a moment now where everyone can see where this is going and we don't have lots of time to address it. We're all going to have to start caring about it soon. Where's Rand Paul at for real though? Rand Paul just wants to do these tax cuts. I mean, really? But I thought he was like super into the deficit. I guess he buys the supply side theory on this, but I just saw a video with Rand Paul and Kelly saying happy Thanksgiving. It was very nice to see that he's feeling better. Godspeed, Rand Paul. I wish you a, a full and speedy recovery. But he said, you know, I'm getting back to Washington to make these tax cuts go through. Come on, man. Ugh. That bums me out. That bums really me bums out too. me out. It bums me out that um, Collins isn't more forcefully against this. And I wonder where Corker and Flake end up. Yeah, they, I hear, I feel like there's like some Corker. Fla- I feel like the fact that the moderates are being pretty quiet means either they're working on something or they're staging a revolt. Do you feel like that? I hope so. Susan Collins, the last clip I saw from her, said that she wants changes to this bill and thinks there will be changes. But, you know, Mick Mulvaney was on all the Sunday shows this weekend, not even being sly about the fact that this is just a game in the system. We've got to do this through reconciliation. We've got to do that. It's bending the rules a little bit, but we need to make it happen. Because why? Wait, wait. Why do we mean to make it happen? I think that's a great question, and it is impossible for me to answer it with anything other than because we said we were going to and we haven't done anything else. That's so depressing. Except manipulate the federal judiciary, which we should talk about next week. Oh, my Lord. I don't want to talk about that because it's too depressing. One thing I do want to say about the judiciary this week before we move on. So a number of judges have been appointed in very significant positions. When Judge Gorsuch was appointed to the Supreme Court, we were fortunate enough to have a listener who ha- whose husband had clerked for Judge Gorsuch when he was a circuit judge and was kind enough to talk to us about it. If there are listeners who have relationships with any of the people who have recently been appointed to the federal bench, we would love to talk with you either for the podcast or just on background, because it's it's a lot. There are a lot of people under consideration and, and, and a lot of confirmations. And so if you have any of that insight, please give us a shout. Would you like to move on, Sarah, to talk about Zimbabwe? Yeah, I really hate thinking about the judges. Are you, are you just sitting there thinking about the judges? Yeah, I'm just it's getting, a Well, the only topic. thing I have, this is what I keep telling myself about the judges just real fast. For, during the George W. Bush administration, this was also, this is when I start to sound old, but this was also a narrative. He is reshaping the bench forever. And, like, it was, like, this very scary narrative. He's putting all these conservative pro-business judges. And I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm not saying, like, um, there were decisions I didn't like. But, I mean, this was also the narrative. But Obama has appointed all these judges. Like, I don't know. Some of this, I think, I'm not saying that they're not moving at a faster clip. And this idea that there's, like... People not that with with no with without recommendations from the bar association, which is so ridiculous to me. Um, but I do have to like just remind myself like we've heard this before. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, the hyperbole of yesterday always comes back to haunt. Mm. And I think a thing to consider with the judiciary is less do we like each of these judges and more what is happening with the process of this as it's unfolding. And I loved the article that you posted on our social media channels about the power of the judiciary. If it is satisfying enough to a group of people in the world that a party is in power in full control of the executive and legislative branches solely to shape the identity of the judicial branch, then I think what the judicial branch represents has become too significant Mm -hmm. to the voting populace. Mm -hmm. I agree. This idea that like, we're just, we'll just sacrifice it all. Well, nothing is more important than that Supreme court seat. It's really, and all the way down the circuit, people act like that. And, and that's something that we do need to have a more robust discussion on. For now, let's move on to talk about Zimbabwe because you know that I love foreign policy. And mm-hmm. I think what's happening there is really interesting. I see the potential for this to become very important. So I wanted to get some context and put some facts together. Just for reference, Chad makes fun of me that I do this, but I like to know the size of the places I'm talking about. Zimbabwe is about the size of the United States state of Montana. Which is a big state. It's a pretty big state. It has a population of 16 million people, which is more than Illinois, less than New York. Nowhere near Montana. Nowhere near Montana. So (laughs) isn't that interesting, though, Larry, to think about? See, I I get into that. But this weekend when I was doing all this research, Chad was like, which state did you pick? (laughs) (laughs) Zimbabwe is landlocked in southern Africa, bordered by South Africa, Botswana, Zambia and Mozambique. There are beautiful mountain ranges in Zimbabwe and Victoria Falls, one of the world's most spectacular waterfalls. And so there is quite a bit of tourism there. It's a very diverse country. There are 16 official languages. Now imagine that in the state state of Montana, right? 16 official languages. And race relations play an enormous role in Zimbabwe's history. It was a British colony called Southern Rhodesia until 1965 when a conservative white minority government declared independence as Rhodesia. For the next 15 years, there was a guerrilla war between that white-led government and black nationalist forces. That culminated in a peace agreement in 1980 that gave everyone the right to vote and made Zimbabwe a a sovereign nation. Zimbabwe is now a member of the UN, as well as several other uh, consortiums of African nations. So the current president of Zimbabwe is Robert Mugabe. He was educated as a teacher and then became an activist as part of that struggle between the conservative white minority government and black nationalists. And during the Rhodesian period, he was a political prisoner for 11 years. He helped negotiate that agreement that ended the guerrilla war. And in 1980, he was elected prime minister and later elected president. So Zimbabwe is technically a democracy, but Mugabe has a very long history of using force to smash political dissent. There have been horrible human rights violations under his leadership, beatings and imprisonment of political opponents. According to Heritage, the economy of Zimbabwe is, quote, characterized by instability and volatility, both of which are hallmarks of excessive government interference and mismanagement. Massive corruption and disastrous economic policies have plunged Zimbabwe into poverty. That is significant because Zimbabwe used to be a very prosperous area of Africa because of all the tourism and because of mineral deposits and agriculture there. 
So Mugabe has essentially decimated the healthcare system in Zimbabwe. He's closed hospitals and clinics and medical schools. Healthcare workers have been beaten. Many people there don't have access to basic sanitation and clean drinking water. All the while, he has traveled extensively to Singapore for his own health care on public funds. That's rude. And that's why there was such a public outcry when he was recently appointed by the World Health Organization as a goodwill ambassador. That um, appointment was ultimately revoked because it was obviously bananas. Mm-hmm. So he's 93 now, and there has been a lot of talk about who's going to replace him uh, when he's no longer empowered. And he has been trying to make the answer to that. His wife, Grace, who's in her 50s. <laughs> His party has How'd been that trying. Go over? Yeah, not well. Not well. His party has been trying to stifle opposition and build control for decades. And there have been accusations of rigged elections, like for real rigged elections. And deals to consolidate power between multiple parties and the united states has actually sanctioned zimbabwe for human violate human rights violations and um, election fraud the problem has been that the main opposition party to mugabe and his party has been fractured for a long time but in the last decade they have started to work together they've tried to impeach him many times but have never had the votes But now they have a parliamentary majority and they forced him to install a vice president that represents the opposition party, which he did. But then about three weeks ago, (laughs) Mugabe just up and fired him. So after he fired him, curiously, the chief of staff of the army, General Chawinga, went to China to meet with top military leaders China is the largest investor in Zimbabwe and has backed Mugabe for a long time. And when I say the largest investor, I mean like military training and equipment, economic investment. Um, The brigade that Mugabe used early in his reign to stifle opposition was trained in North Korea. Hmm. We probably all remember that North Korea also funded in lots of ways by China. So, General goes off to China, comes back, and a military coup takes place. They put Mugabe under house arrest and take control of the country and say they're doing this pending a peaceful transition of power. Um, Everyone comes out and says Mugabe is safe. No worries. Military doesn't intend to stay in control. We just have to start dealing with all of the people around Mugabe who are trying to... um, undermine our democracy, essentially. And no one knows if China had a role in this, if they even knew about it. Like, what did General Chiwenga discuss with senior Chinese military officials? We don't know. Mm -hmm. And I read where one commentator said, that's sort of the billion dollar question. What's China up to here? There's Mm -hmm. a theory that China could be tired of Mugabe because some of China's investments have gone bad in Zimbabwe because of his corruption and mismanagement. So it's unclear what's happening. Over the weekend, um, Mugabe came on television and said that he would not be resigning. They had given him a deadline to resign, or they said they would start impeachment proceedings. His party threw him out. His party also expelled his wife, so she would not be eligible to succeed him. But Mugabe said, hey, everybody, um, I'm going to preside over the next Congress and we'll figure things out then. (laughs) To which 
military leader said, that's pretty divorced from reality. And the minority party said, then we're going to start impeachment proceedings. So unclear what's going to happen. The United States Senate Foreign Relations Committee is pretty uneasy about this. Here's a statement from that committee. For nearly four decades, Zimbabweans have suffered under the authoritarian rule of President Robert Mugabe, a dictator who has repressed his people and presided over the economic deterioration of his country. While a change in leadership is long overdue, we are concerned about the military's actions. We urge the leaders of the Zimbabwe Defense Forces to ensure the protection of all citizens and a transparent return to civilian control. As the country grapples with a new political reality, Zimbabwe's leaders must adhere to democratic processes and establish a mechanism for the peaceful transfer of power that is consistent with Zimbabwe's constitution and the will of its people. Which is a long way of saying... We don't know what's going to happen here, right? Mm -hmm. And the thing about this is that Zimbabwe without Mugabe hasn't really existed. It's been a different thing. But he's been there since the beginning of Zimbabwe as it's constituted today and as we know it. So I think this is really fascinating. And Sarah, what I'd love to get your reaction to is when I think about the idea of proxy wars in our sort of new world landscape, the influence of China, the, if I'm Vladimir Putin, how am I reacting to this news? It seems to have some parallels with Saudi Arabia. I I just think there's a lot here that we don't really understand yet. I think that the world sees um, Donald Trump as giving up a lot of America's power and bargaining capacity and interest in exerting American influence in several world events. And so there's a vacuum and there's a destabilization sort of ripple effect as everybody's like, well, the United States isn't paying attention. So what can we do? Uh, Be it China, Saudi Arabia or Russia. And I think that the destabilization we're seeing in places like the Middle East and and now Africa and um, South America, Central America, I think like it's just going to it's just going to continue when there's nobody, you know, I know nobody wants us to be the world police. But when there's no world police, what do you think is going to happen? It feels kind of chicken and egg with Trump, too. Is he symptom or cause Mm. of some of these things? This has been brewing forever. And the timing of it. Probably has nothing to do with Donald Trump, but it's hard to ignore that vacuum, as you said. How would this have gone down mm-hmm. under a different administration? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of important questions here. And I think the role of Africa in the world, it's time that we start understanding Africa better. Yeah, definitely. And, I, you know, it's just when I listen to it, I listen to the, just the whole situation. You know, like this is what... People talk. I think this is the fear people have with Trump. Like, if you have, when you have authoritarian dictators, they don't like to give up their power. Then you have to have the military have military in, have an influ- outsized role, and it's just you know it just makes you realize how fragile democracy really is. And also, I always think like, what a um, exceptional figure in history George Washington was that he was like, no, I'm good. I'll see you later. Like, it just that's like never happens. They want to stay till they're 90 and then put their wife in charge. You know, it's just very, very rare. And um, it just kind of puts me in a very global historical state of mind. Hey, we didn't prepare for this, but I know our listeners are going to want to know what you think about Senator Gillibrand's comments this weekend. Oh, I mean, I mean, look. Chris Gillibrand's running for president, and I'm here for it. That's fine with me. I have no problem with that. 
Um, and I think she's right. I think, I mean, I think she was not state, state I, I'm assuming you're talking about her saying Bill Clinton should have resigned. Mm-hmm. I think that if you like listen, read her comments or listen to her comments, like they were a little more nuanced than the press is giving her credit for, which is basically like in that time period, nobody even thought that was a thing. Like that was not the standard, but now it would be like it, he would need to resign in the face of something like that. And the implications are, you know, obvious that Trump shouldn't be there either in the face of this sort of sexual harassment he um, admitted to either. So um I don't have any. I love, love Christian Gillibrand. So she she would have to work way harder than that to make me mad. <laughs> well, what is your compliment for the other side this week? I am complimenting Lisa Murkowski, who said she would not vote for the Senate tax cuts if they included the repeal of the individual mandate. And I hope she's rallying some of her troops with her. I'd like to see more centrist Republicans. Like I said, I'm not sure what they're up to, but I can't wait to find out. I wanted to compliment Brian Baird, who I know very little about, but he is a former Democratic congressman from Washington State who has partnered with a former state GOP chair to form an organization that will, hallelujah and amen, support independent centrist candidates. Awesome. They have defined this group as fiscally conservative, pro-free enterprise, socially tolerant, and environmentally responsible, and they will not have any litmus test for their candidates. And that is the part of the article that I read that just made my heart sing. Thank mm-hmm. you for not having litmus tests for candidates. I think it's wonderful. Godspeed to you guys. So up next, we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic and the president's policy in that regard. So, Sarah, I want to start out by thanking Jacqueline, who is doing some research for us for her help with getting information to us on the opioid epidemic. Because of, you know, the zillion other things happening, we didn't have an opportunity to talk about President Trump's address on opioids. So I'm happy to be able to circle back on this. So on August 10th, President Trump promised to declare a national emergency to combat the crisis at his New Jersey golf club. I bet he said in two weeks because that's his favorite time period. In two weeks, you're going to see. In two weeks. In two weeks. So it was over two weeks. Super ass. On October 16th, about two months later, President Trump spoke in the Rose Garden press conference and said that he would have a big announcement on opiates within the next week. Then... Ten days later, President Trump and Acting Health Secretary Eric Cargan declared the opiate crisis a public health emergency, but not a national emergency. Now, Beth, what's the difference? So an order of public health emergency lasts 90 days and can be renewed every 90 days until the president no longer thinks it's necessary. A national disaster would have called on FEMA and therefore used federal funds to get a handle on opioid deaths. FEMA funds are normally distributed for a foreseeable amount of time and distributed to a specific geographic location. A public health emergency essentially provides direction to all related federal agencies to allocate unspent grant funds and other resources to the emergency. So there is a fund associated with public health emergencies, but that fund doesn't have any money right now (laughs) and needs allocation from Congress which the president hopes to have during the budget negotiations. Sure. So the people who are responsible for the public health emergency are Public Health and Human Services, which currently 
We're waiting for confirmation of a new secretary <laughs> and the president. And then Congress is a stakeholder because it has ability to actually fund efforts to deal with it. So what happens from here? The president has stated that he would potentially pursue a campaign targeting youth in order to reduce the number of opioid users. I mean, I who believes that. He, yeah, he's going to go full Nancy Reagan as if that fixed anything the first time. There is a potential option of teledoctors where opioid users can see a doctor through the computer because a big part of the issue right now is that rural users don't have access to good treatment. People are also afraid to get treatment for fear that the treatment would not be covered by their insurance and just the stigma of the whole thing. So you've got a big problem there in general. And now we have to wait for Congress to pass budget legislation that would fill the public health emergency fund. And we would have to decide what to spend that money on. This does allow states to be more empowered to direct federal funds to improve the crisis, presumably through decreasing the amount of opioid-related deaths and incidents. That's another problem with things like this. You have to figure out what what would success mean and how mm. do we measure that. And states can ask for more federal grant money related to opioid use. They're probably more likely to receive it because the president has turned his attention to this policy. So there are some good things, uh, but you have to think about it in context. You know, in 2016, there were 64,000 deaths in the United States related to opioids. That has more than quadrupled since 1999. And Congress has done some things on this before. They've made it easier for companies to distribute prescription opioids um, and given more latitude and warnings before removing licenses. There, there's a lot to look at in terms of our legislative history on how Was that, I'm sorry, we've gotten to where we are. They've done more to make it worse. Is that what you mean? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, I mean, we've got... We've got a lot of history to look at in terms of why we're here. I had a really interesting conversation with my mom, who is a little bit frustrated that she thinks doctors are being blamed constantly for the opioid crisis instead of people being focused on solutions. And I think this is a hard one because you do have to... I don't think it's about blame, but you do have to tease out how we got here, I think, to figure out why it's different from the just say no and dare days, because it is different. Well, um, I like to blame people, so I am going to blame some people. The first people <laughs> I am going to blame total and com- I'm going to place total and complete responsibility on and give, I'm just going to be honest, no benefit of the doubt to is the pharmaceutical companies, um, particularly, um, oh shoot, I can't remember the name. There's an amazing article, two amazing articles about the family um, behind this company that uh, made Oxycontin. So they knew the risk of these drugs. They knew the dosage was wrong and they kept it a secret. So I am 100% comfortable blaming, putting total blame on the pharmaceutical companies for their role in this, which I believe is large. I also believe doctors share blame, but I think with the exception of pill slingers, which there are, and not like small amount of, so we have that group that really just slings pills, does it to make money. I don't think that's the majority of doctors. I think that is a very small minority, but I do think they're there and we have to deal with them. And I think you have doctors, and I spoke about this after I saw Atul Gwande speak, who it was amazing, who said basically, well, we caused it, it's our fault. Um, out of a sincere concern for pain, we just don't 
We don't have a great understanding of the physicality of pain, much less cultural messages about pain, which we've talked about on the show before, telling people they should expect no pain or that they should, like, no pain at all is just a reasonable thing to expect throughout your entire life. So I think there is a, the the role doctors played is, Look, for better or for worse, the medical profession is not very adaptable. It takes a long time because of, I think, the way that they are educated in medical school. Um, the education doesn't revolve around sort of an evidence-based, look, I didn't go to medical school. Don't send me letters and be like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I know I don't know what I'm talking about. I went to law school. But from what I understand, it's not an evidence-based education. It's a... Um, th- this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. 
The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. It's not Socratic. I heard somebody describe it really well, but it's a very, very dated form of educating people about something as hugely complex and ever-changing as our understanding of the body. So I think that that is sort of a more complicated sort of uh, source of responsibility for this, but there it is there. Like there's just, there's not um, a better and... It's like a desire to say we were wrong and we have to change the way we think about this. It just takes doctors forever to do that kind of thing. I mean, I was hugely encouraged because when I went to see a Dogwande, the place was overrun with medical students. So that's very encouraging. But I think that that, you know, I think that the medical profession is responsible. Now, do I think that they went out to turn the all, all American citizens into zombie, you know, opioid zombies? No, I don't. But I do think there was there's responsibility there, and I think that if we don't get to that, if we don't get to, um, if the medical profession is not going to sit at the table as a stakeholder saying we're responsible for part of this and we'd like to take responsibility for fixing it, I'm not sure how far we're going to get. This crisis puts everyone in an impossible position. I always advocate when we talk about medical issues, patient responsibility, a sense of don't abdicate your role in the doctor patient relationship. You need to describe accurately and completely what's going on in your body to the best of your ability. You need to ask the doctor for recommendations and with the doctor's advice, decide for yourself what you want to do. That's my whole philosophy about birth that we've talked about on the podcast before. So I think that where I come out on opioids is that we, we all have to change because when you take my philosophy about patient responsibility and at the same time know that medical professionals have an evolved understanding of what can happen when they prescribe this kind of painkiller. We, we both have to come forward because a doctor who now understands zero pain is unrealistic, to use your phrase, Sarah, bumping up against a patient who still wants zero pain. Mm -hmm. This is a really difficult seat to be in. And it's much like the way that the court system is not designed in any respect to deal with drug addiction. And that's all a lot of our court systems are able to do now, because that's the only mechanism we have to deal with some of the effects of people taking opioids. Yeah. Social workers, school teachers, you know, it's an endless list of people who were not trained to deal with this very specific problem, having this very specific problem overtake an enormous amount of their responsibilities. And so I wonder when I think about Look, I, I compliment the president for making this a national conversation because it is well past time for that to happen. And to the extent that any declaration helps free up some resources, hooray. 
I'm struggling with how those resources get spent effectively because I think this problem has so many layers. And I would love to hear from, I know we have a lot of expertise on this issue among our listenership. I would love to hear everyone's best thinking. If you had what, you know, name your figure, $10 billion to combat this problem, where do you start? Because some of it starts in the doctor's office, but there are things embedded in our culture way before that moment of, I have a back injury or a car accident or whatever that have helped us get here. So if I had the power of the federal government, and I know this is going to seem um, counterintuitive to a lot of people, but you know, the first thing I do, I would make pot legal and I would really reexamine the way we treat hallucinogenics because both of those drugs help the addicts that are addicted right now to opioids. And, you know, reexamining the medical profession and the pharmaceuticals role is important, but it's not going to help the people who are addicted right now. And those two drugs do. And I know it's not the 1980s Ronald Reagan approach to look at drugs to, tr- to treat a drug addiction problem, but, you know, I'm willing to use whatever it takes. And so if this, if the, if there's any evidence that marijuana and hallucinogenics can help addicts of addicted to opioids, then let's do it. What are we waiting for? Or at least help us avoid a new generation of addicts. Yeah. Right. If you can treat pain with pot in a way that's safer, then that's a step. Yep. And that's the thing. It's like, you know, our war on drugs was all drugs are bad, which is stupid. It's just stupid. If I had a choice between my kids doing marijuana and opioid, am I just going to be like, no, they're all bad? No, of course, they're not all bad. They're not all equally bad. So why do we act like they are? Well, I hope that we can eventually have the cultural conversation about pain, that that you are going to experience it, that 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 there are degrees of pain and some of them you should not experience. There are absolutely people who need these drugs. And that's a hard part of the conversation too. There are absolutely people in a level of pain that they cannot continue to live their lives. And so there's not an easy answer to this, but to your point, the the one thing that really troubled me in the president's remarks was the way that he talked about opioids as you would talk about any other drug mm. and kind of the references to, this coming in from the Mexican border and, oh, and all yeah. these gang references. Like, I think that's a dated understanding of a very modern problem. And one thing that might help as to marijuana, that would be a place to free up some resources because yeah. right now the marijuana, the fact that States have made different decisions than the federal government about the legality of marijuana is consuming all kinds of resources. Yeah. There are lawsuits. There are banks that don't know whether they can take money from pot dispensaries that are legal in the states, so but dumb. illegal under federal law. It's like, so let's just wipe out that problem. That would be one step to free up some money. Yeah, it's the dumbest. I'm sorry. It is. It's just the dumbest. Or do pe- there, are there people who really care about marijuana anymore? I'm honestly ans- asking that question. Look, do I want my children to be pot smokers? No. But that's, I think, a conversation for me to have with them, as I will have conversations about alcohol and cigarettes and all kinds of things that are perfectly legal. Yeah. I mean, like, it's like it's a thing. Do I want my kids to be um, binge drinkers? No. Do I care if they drink? No. Do I want my kids to be pot smokers? No. Do I care if they smoke some pot? No, I don't. I just don't. I'm sorry. <sighs> 
It just seems like such a waste of energy. That's the thing. Energy is a a finite resource, Resource. right? Yeah. And I think that directing energy toward opioid use is critically important. Well, and I think the thing we really need to understand is because we, as a country, and I'm just have allowed this to get out of control because it's a democracy and we could be voting people out who don't pay attention and do what we want on this. Then what we have allowed is an addiction um, crisis to grow at such a rate that now it is has it has fueled a market for cheaper, easier, easier opioids like fentanyl, which are and which is massively dangerous. Fentanyl should scare the living daylights out of all of us. Um, and because, you know, the crisis has reached such a point, I mean, look. The markets, if the market is exists, if there is a market for bigger, scary opioids because we have so many addicts, then guess what? Drug dealers are going to fill it. And so, I mean, just the the amount of things that can come through the mail and how little fentanyl it takes, which means how much they can. It's just it's very scary. It is very scary. To your point about marijuana, another thing I think to draw out from that from that idea we are going to have to be open to ideas that would make us uncomfortable previously. Mm-hmm. And I think we also need to resist any temptation to get wrapped up in something because we don't know what's going to work. I was reading an article over the weekend about the effectiveness of needle exchanges and how there are, you know, there are huge advocates for programs where people can get clean needles. And in some geographic regions, that just hasn't been effective. And that's hard, right? When you put yourself out there and you fight for something that you really believe could help and you do that at, at great um, personal expense because there are people who are so opposed to that and see it as enabling. And then you try it and it fails. That's really, really hard. Now, I'm not saying that it has failed everywhere. I truly don't know. I mean, I think that we need a lot more data to make good decisions about this. I do think that these need to be data-driven decisions because no one has a magic formula to deal with this right now. Well, and the idea that I think there is going to be solutions that require nothing difficult or nothing hard and no changes, which is sort of what we like as America, you fix it and don't change any part of my life. Okay, well, that's probably not going to happen. Some of us are going to get drug treatment facilities where we might not want drug treatment facilities. And some of us might not be able to get drugs as easily as we want to get drugs. Some of us that are in serious pain. I'm sorry. It's just that that might have to happen for a while. Like the idea of living in commonality in a society together is sometimes you make sacrifices for the better good. And we have somehow sort of, especially when it comes to drug addiction, um, have decided that 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 should never be required of us, which to me is out. It's just ludicrous. That is someone's child. I know it's easy to sit in judgment. I get it. But if we cannot maintain our humanity and our empathy for the, I'm talking about the people in the front of the cop car with their kids in the back, those people, every single one of them who seems like the walking dead and um, just so far from anything we could possibly understand, we're going to have to stretch and try to figure it out and try to be in that person's shoes and understand how they got there and how we can prevent someone else from getting there and how to help them, even if it makes us uncomfortable. 
You're so right because it can happen to anyone and it can happen so quickly. The other thing that I was thinking about as you were saying that about how it's going to be more difficult for some of us to get access to medication, I'm struggling with who should take the lead in solving this problem. Maybe the answer is just everyone. That's probably the answer, everyone. But as far as coordination of resources and uh, coming up with solutions, there are very localized elements to this problem. When you pass a law about how many pills can be distributed at a time, the impact of that law on someone like me who lives in a major metropolitan area is so different than the impact on my mother who currently has to drive two hours to see a physician who's a specialist in her area, you know? And so the rural urban divide makes this quite different. The pervasiveness of the usage in different areas makes a difference. I think that there is a lot of discussion that needs to be had about how we have coordinated responses to all of this with room for those geographic differences. There is no way in my mind technology cannot help us solve those geographic problems. I mean, that's what Atul Gawande was talking about. Like if you're, you can't ask somebody who drives six hours for cancer surgery to come back for a refill of their pain prescription. So people give them too much so they don't have to come back. Well, guess what happens when they don't use them all? They get sold. And so he said, I mean, like that he was like computer prescribing is an answer here. You know, the pharmacy has the ability, or I mean, I guess you just call the office and they, I don't know how it works. I don't care. I've said my expertise. I just refuse to believe that there's not a way to fix this so that a computer can refill the prescription or you can make a phone call or whatever. And we can make this so people don't have to drive six hours to get a refill. Come on. I got a computer in my kitchen that will order me more paper towels. We can't figure this out. And maybe that part of the answer then is to spend resources on that sort of infrastructure. And that's the thing, though, like the problem is what's the market um, motivation for a pharmaceutical company or a hospital or even doctors to get this? Like, I don't I don't know where the problem is. Where's the market motivation? Because we like to solve everything with capitalism in this country. So where's the market motivation to have make that happen? Or does that need to be an initiative from the federal government? I don't know the answer to that. I can't imagine that the market wouldn't reward I'm not saying that capitalism is the solution to opioids. I don't know what the solution to opioids is. I really don't. It's hard for me to imagine that the market would not reward something that helped solve this problem because there are so many families impacted by it who never in a million years would have dreamed of being impacted by something like this. I don't think that someone should get rich off of that solution. I'm just saying who is winning right now in this crisis? And we've got a tragedy of the commons. We all think because we are not personally addicted to opioids or we don't live in a country, a part of the country that's racked by it yet, that it's not affecting us. But it is, y'all. It when is. you have that that's many right. people dying, it is most certainly affecting every single one of us. And we are seeing impacts in ways we don't fully understand be it economic impacts on the cost of medical treatment or emergency services or in just really cosmic ways like you don't know who died. You don't know what that 18-year-old who could have done or who he could have saved. It might have been you. So, you know, it just it's at this scale in particular, it is impacting all of us as a country. 
And in that way, it is analogous to a national disaster. I don't fault the president for not declaring it a national disaster because I don't know if FEMA would have any better idea how to pursue this. Also, they're pretty taxed right now. You know, I think it's, that's a great point. I think it's appropriate for Congress to have to think through what are we going to fund? How are we going to fund it? Where are those resources coming from? So I I don't, they're too busy with tax cuts. They don't have time for that right now. I would like them to get on this though, because I, I do think it's analogous to a national disaster. I mean, this, this is an enormous crisis and it is to your excellent point, a test of our humanity to be able to look at people in the throes of this and feel empathy for them. And you cannot blame people for hating our government or doubting the institution of Congress when their communities are being just massacred by this addiction and they're reading stories about private jet tax cuts. Sorry, you can't help but be cynical. That's not a very positive way to end this discussion, but I feel like it's an appropriate one. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. 
their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast 15. Next up, we're going to talk on talk about what's on our minds outside politics. What are you thinking about right now, Sarah? Um, I'm getting ready for Christmas. Are you ready for Christmas before a Thanksgiving person? Yes. Before or after? Before I'm, Before. I'm listen, I've always been after and I've totally changed my tune because it I is. feel like Christmas sneaks up on me. Yep. I mm-hmm. don't fully enjoy it because it becomes so stressful. So now I'm fully I'm on board with your system of get everything knocked mm-hmm. out. You can before Thanksgiving. Listen, y'all, here is the thing. There's really no nuance here. It is a better approach because let me just explain. First of all, this is really what made me see the light. Europe gets to do Christmas for like two months, and that's not fair because they don't have Thanksgiving. Now, I love Thanksgiving. Here's my favorite part of Thanksgiving. All the oysters go on sale at the grocery store because nobody makes oyster dressing anymore, but they still order at Kroger like they do. And my husband buys them all up, and we have like oyster poi boys and oyster chowder, and it's delicious. That's a completely unrelated note, but you should check your – if you are an oyster person, you should check your grocery store after Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. But, like, it truncates it. They get two months. That's not fair. I want two months of Christmas. I love Christmas. And there's just so much to do. And I would kill myself the week. And and, and the events start as soon as Thanksgiving over. Like, our little Advent walk where we walk from all the churches and every church does, like, a musical number. It's, like, one of my favorite things. It's, like, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. So, like, we're full on Christmas by that point. But I don't get to really enjoy that because I'm killing myself to get every decoration up in, like, three or four or five days. That's not fun. So now I do basically everything but trees because I do like to decorate the trees after Christmas. So I do, you know, I do little the little half trees. I do shelves. I do I change out a lot of my wall art like I really love Christmas, you guys. And I just, you know, get it done. And then you just have like sort of a relaxed atmosphere after Thanksgiving to, you know, decorate a tree one evening. It's just nice. I'm telling y'all, it is, it's, it's so much better that way. I was very proud a couple of weeks ago, I ordered my Christmas cards, which is usually something that Chad and I think about in kind of an, oh no way around the second week of December. (laughs) So having them here, I'm going to get them addressed this week, get them in the mail the first week of December. I feel really adult about that. That's definitely a do early kind of thing because that's like nobody wants to be sitting around addressing Christmas cards. Unless you do like if you're like a handwriting person. Yeah. I just try to save the activities that I enjoy, not the activities I just try to get done. You know what I mean? I think that's a really good point. And my other point about that is that I've tried to reduce the don't enjoy activities as much as possible. Like there are things that I'm just like, you know what? I'm going to take the pressure off around Christmas and just let this go. That's fine. It's no big deal. 
We have an extensive conversation about this on the second episode of Nuanced Life, if this is a thing you're into, by the way. So coming back to Thanksgiving for a second, have you ever read the awkward family story uh, Thanksgiving letter? No. The awkward family photos. I have to read it to you because it is hysterical. It's old. It's been around forever. I listen to it every Thanksgiving on the Bob and Sherry show, which is this podcast it's a podcast from a radio show that's nationally syndicated that I think is funny. So they always read this every Thanksgiving and I think it's awesome. And I have to share it for those of you who have not heard it before. And we'll link in the show notes too. So this is a letter from Marnie who is orchestrating Thanksgiving dinner to her family. And she writes, as you all know, a fabulous Thanksgiving dinner does not make itself. I need to ask each of you to help by bringing something to complete the meal. I truly appreciate your offers to assist with the meal preparation. Now, while I do have quite a sense of humor and joke around all the time, I could not be more serious when I am providing you with your Thanksgiving instructions and orders. (laughs) I'm very particular. So please perform your task exactly as I have requested and read your portion very carefully. And what you can't see is that there are a lot of all caps and bolds (laughs) in this letter. If I ask you to bring your offering in a container that has a lid, bring your offering in a container with a lid, not aluminum foil. If I ask (laughs) you to bring... Oh, I hate aluminum foil. My husband does that. Aluminum foil (laughs) as a lid substitute is unacceptable. I mean, I do understand the stacking is helpful. If I ask you to bring a serving spoon for your dish, bring a serving spoon, not a soup spoon. And please do not forget anything. (laughs) All food that is to be cooked should already be prepared. Bring it hot and ready to serve warm or room temp. These are your only three options. Anything meant to be served cold should, of course, already be cold. Now she gives into the specific assignments. So for the Mike Byron family. Turnips in a casserole with a lid and a serving spoon. Please do not fill the casserole all the way up to the top. It gets too messy. I know this may come as a bit of a surprise to you, but most of us hate turnips, so don't feel like you have to feed an army. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, two half gallons of ice cream. One must be vanilla. I don't care what the other one is. No store brands, please. I did see an ad this morning for Haagen-Dazs peppermint bark ice cream. Yum. No pressure here, though. Number three, toppings for the ice cream. Number four, a case of bottled water, not gallons. Any brand is okay. For the Michelle Bobble family, number one, stuffing in a casserole with a serving spoon. Please make the stuffing sans meat. Number two, two and a half to three quarts of mashed squash in a casserole with a lid and a serving spoon. Number three, a prosciutto pinwheel. Please stick to the recipe. No need to bring a plate. (laughs) Number four, a pie knife. The Bob Byron family. Number one, green beans or asparagus, not both, in a casserole with a lid and a serving spoon. If you are making the green beans, please prepare four pounds. If you are making asparagus, please prepare five pounds. It is up to you to know how you wish to prepare them. No soupy sauces, no cheese. This is my favorite part. (laughs) You know how Mike is. (laughs) A light sprinkling of toasted nuts or pancetta or some EVOO would be a nice way to jazz them up. Number two, a case of beer of your choice. I have Coors Light and Corona or a bottle of Clos de Bois Chardonnay. You'll have to let me know which you will bring prior to the 22nd. The Bob Byron family. No, I just read that one. Sorry. The Lisa Byron Chesterfield family. <laughs> These names. <laughs> Lisa, as a married woman, you are now required to contribute at the adult level. <laughs> You can bring hors d'oeuvres. A few helpful hints, suggestions. Keep it very light and non-filling. No cocktail sauce. No beans of any kind. I think your best bet would be a platter of fresh veggies and dip. Not a huge platter, mind you. I.e. not the plastic platter from the supermarket. Word. The June Davis family. 
Number one, 15 pounds of mashed potatoes in a casserole with a serving spoon. Side note, have you ever, like, 15 pounds of mashed potatoes? But she's got several families. There you go. Everybody likes mashed potatoes. Please do not use the oversized blue serving dish you used last year. Because you're making such a large batch, you can do one of two things. Put half the mash in a a regulation-sized casserole with lid and put the other half in a plastic container, and we can just replenish with that. Or use two regulation-sized casserole dishes with lids. Only one serving spoon is needed. Number two, a bottle of Clos de Bois Chardonnay. The Amy Misto family. She has in parentheses, why do I even bother? She will never read this. (laughs) (laughs) Number one, a pumpkin pie in a pie dish. Please use my silver palette recipe. No knife needed. And number two, an apple pie in a pie dish. You can use your own recipe. No knife needed. Looking forward to the 28th, Marnie. Okay, I love Marnie. I am going to defend Marnie. Here's the thing. So my entire life, my parents are both one of four. And my mom's family, we go to her one of four, like her siblings. And then we also go to my grandmother's one of four family. There are a lot. There are 50 adults. There were 50 adults in my family growing up. And my mom's, like my great grandparents, when we would get together with that side of the family. And I always thought my female relatives were crazy. But listen, it is a serious undertaking to feed that many families. And... I'm just going to be honest. My mom and my grandmother are super hypercritical, and it got on my nerves most of my adult life. But now I realize that nobody was teaching anyone else these things, and it's a hot mess when you try to feed a group of people where no one knows the dang rules. Like, don't bring a tiny little, like, they have this, they talk all the time about my one great aunt who would, like, roll in with a group of, like, 40 people with, like, a tiny jello mold. Okay, who's that going to feed? Nobody. So, you know, I feel for Marnie. I do. I just think that, like, people... For better or for worse, there's not a lot of, like, sort of large-scale entertaining that happens as much in our, like, sort of current era. And so the rules, like, don't get passed down. And, like, there are rules. You need serving spoons. You need lids. Like, you need a certain amount when there are so many people and you're making a popular dish. Like, and if people aren't learning, somebody's got to teach them. And in this case, it is clearly Marnie. And I I, I got no problem with Marnie. You do you, Marnie. I think you're doing a good job, girl. The most amazing thing is that there is an interview, a video interview with Marnie on the Awkward Family Photos website with this letter that you should definitely watch. I mean, my solution to these kinds of issues has always been, don't bring anything. I've got it because I am very particular about things. And so I just cook it myself instead of judging other people. And then when I make it potluck style, I just let it go. And I don't judge what people bring or how they bring it because I invited them to bring something And I feel very you do you about that situation. I mean, I think that there is a role. And it sounds like she's got like she's clearly making the turkey, the meat. Like she's got some of the big things covered. But like. It's hard. It's a lot to do everything. You can ask my friends. There has been more than one dinner party at other people's house where like there was no chief and somebody needed a debt. There needed to be a chief because it's the food gets cold and people don't know what the heck they're doing. And I just take charge. I, I probably hurt people's feelings. Although usually I'm, they're like, thank you for just telling everybody it's time to eat and getting everybody in charge. Because, like, it's just, look, it is a complicated exercise. And there needs to be some ground rules. And if every single person always just shoulders all the tasks or so, I think here's what happened. I think for so long, now we're just getting into gendered politics here. But I think for so long, a lot of women were just kind of like, okay, well... Um, I'll just do it all myself. And then everybody was like, this is crap. And I don't like doing it all myself. And then said they outsourced it instead of saying, looking, you know, we just did the sort of, this goes back to America's, uh, Marnie's letter as cultural critique. Like this, 
this became like, well, I'll just do it myself. Well, I'm too tired. I don't want to freaking do it all myself. So people either stopped doing it or outsourced it instead of looking around to community members, family members, whoever, and being like, hey, let's have a conversation about this. And let's be like, this is what needs to happen for all of us to get together and have a good time and not have to eat Stouffer's lasagna every time. You know what I mean? I do. And I think it is, I do like about this that she's just saying, okay, everybody, if you want a certain kind of Thanksgiving, this is what we got to do. This is what we got to do. My my question is, does everybody want this kind of Thanksgiving? Like, is this important to everyone? Important enough to be told, you know, which dish to use? I don't know. I bet it is. Everybody <laughs> everybody wants that Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving, man. Most people do, I think. But you got to work for that piece, y'all. You got to work for it. It's worth it. Everything hard is worth it. Remember? Yeah. Yay, Thanksgiving. Go team. We got this, y'all. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us for another episode. Do check out The Nuanced Life, where we have a lot of thoughts about holidays to share, and it will not surprise you that Sarah and I are in slightly different places about some of them. I feel like we could do an entire podcast on holidays. Like maybe that's maybe it's just it's the nuanced holiday life. We can just do that here through Easter. To be honest with you, I think that we could probably talk about each individual holiday and still have a lot of material to work with. Yeah, I mean, think about how much material Valentine's Day provides. Come on. It's never ending. Days of Valentine's Day material. We will not do that today, though. We have we have spoken enough, and we look forward to hearing from you on social media and via email. So on Friday, speaking of The Nuance Life, on Friday, you will have an ep- the premiere episode of The Nuance Life in your feed. One, to introduce you to the podcast, and two, so we can take Thanksgiving off. So that is going to be the Friday episode. There will be no um, regular Friday episode, and we will see you back next Tuesday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Paint Soup Politics and on Twitter at Paint Soup Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Paint Soup Politics theme music. <laughs>